Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Welcome, everyone, to the Eye on the Cure podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shaberman, with the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And I'm very excited today to have as my guest, Rando Alakmatz. And Rando is a PhD, and he's the William and Donna Aquavella Professor at the Department of Ophthalmology and Pathology and Cell Biology at the Harkness Eye Institute at Columbia University in New York. And he's also Director of Research there. Rando, welcome to Eye on the Cure. Thank you very much, Ben. It's a pleasure. The pleasure is mine. So much of the podcast, uh, we're going to focus on Stargardt disease and other macular dystrophies because that's really Rando's wheelhouse. He's been working on identifying and understanding the genetic factors that cause macular conditions like AMD, Stargardt disease, Best disease, cone rod dystrophies for much of his career. But Rando, I'd like to start out hearing about how you got involved in retinal genetics, because you came over from Estonia. I know you studied in the USSR a few years ago, but you came over to study cancer gene, if I'm correct. Yeah, my career has been kind of developing through many continents. Again, I'm an Estonian. I, at that time, and this was the 70s and 80s, we couldn't go west, so the best school I had was uh, Moscow University uh, that I attended from 78 to 83. And I graduated actually as a virologist and molecular biologist. Then my studies, five years studies in Moscow, after which I got my PhD and, and went back to Estonia, were mostly dedicated uh, towards uh, genome library constructions and gene cloning, new methods. And uh, at that time, you know, this was all art form. Yeah? So nowadays, you know, you sit at the computer and that's it. Then it was heavy manual labor. Uh, so my PhD thesis was in uh, developing methods of genomic library construction and gene cloning. And soon thereafter, I started uh, looking into cancer genes, specifically at tumor suppressor genes. And our one main goal at that time was to find the tumor suppressor gene for lung cancer that was on chromosome three. And again, at that time, people were looking at separate chromosomes, not at the genome. And so we were trying several cloning methods. And I did a lot of that work in uh, Stockholm Sweden at Karolinska Institute in the tumor biology department with legendary leader, now deceased George Klein. So that's when I was doing mostly cancer work. And that work got me invited to National Cancer Institute, which I joined in the fall or pretty much before Christmas in 1991. And my main goal or topic of my postdoctoral research at NCI was to study the ATP binding cassette transporter superfamily. Why was that, that this superfamily of genes, uh, proteins, have several examples of transporters that pose or contradict chemotherapy? 
So meaning that they pump chemotherapeutic drugs out of cells, uh, and so therefore making chemotherapy less effective. And also the first major gene other than multidrug resistance that was cloned was the gene for cystic fibrosis. And this was cloned in collaboration with my NCI boss, Mike Dean, uh, with former long-term NIH director. And uh, that study was published in 89. So that's where my work started to be in ABC genes, ATP binding cassette transporters. And what I had to do, we started from model organisms, but, you know, in mid-90s, we were able already, since the tools became available, to move into human genes. And I was told or tasked to clone all ABC transporters in the human genome that had not been yet identified. So when I started, there was about a dozen genes known. When I finished, it's now 48. So I cloned most of them, not all of them in their entirety. I cloned pieces of genes out of genomic libraries and then trying to map these genes to human chromosomes and also look at the expression of those genes. Then it was done by standard commercially available northern block that included only a dozen or so main tissues, yeah, like brain, muscle, and liver, and so on. And so that's what I was doing. And one of these genes, we cloned several interesting and published disease genes that other people have now continued working on. But one of these pieces of the gene turned out to be kind of difficult to work on. So when I tried looking at its expression, the northern bots were clean. Yeah? So there was no trace of its expression in any major tissue. Usually the ABC transporters are so-called housekeeping genes. They are expressed in many tissues and sometimes in all tissues. But this one, I couldn't see where it's expressed. I even thought maybe it's a contamination of the library and not a real gene. And then also the mapping, I had some issues. But I had a couple of breakthroughs when we looked where that piece of the gene came from appeared in the database that was publicly available. It appeared to have come from the retina library that Jeremy Nathans was and still is at Johns Hopkins had deposited to the database. And so then we said, aha, it probably has to do with some specificity. So we contacted him and he put it on a northern blood containing retina uh, RNA and it lit up like a candle. So it was a direct hit and immediately told us it's a very tissue-specific gene, you know, that it was expressed in the retina. So at the same time, I was able to map it on human chromosome 1. When we looked at the literature a year before, my now good collaborators, uh, Jim Lapsky from Houston and Paul Bernstein and Mark Leppard from the University of Utah, you know, they had mapped the Stargardt region on chromosome one. And this gene mapped straight in the middle of that region. So once we knew that it mapped into the Stargardt region and also that it is retina specific, it was a slam dunk. So we 
did the mutation analysis, I cloned the full gene. And uh, so this was how the Starbird disease gene was discovered. An interesting remark is that often people don't know the history of that. For example, the protein had been described 20 years before that in late 70s by Dr. Papermaster, who was really excited. He said that I described the protein. Now, finally, the gene has been found, you know, 20 years later. And uh, yeah, this opened a lot of venues for research, although I wasn't maybe extremely excited because I said, okay, this is just another eye disease gene or any disease gene that we have discovered. It is a single gene disorder, Stargard. Stargard is a recessive disease, meaning you need two mutations. Both alleles have to be mutated. Usually one comes from the father, mutation the other from the mother. And so disease appears in the family out of nowhere. Yeah. So this is what recessive diseases do. So then we said, okay, Stargard is a macular dystrophy. Why not to try and see if it is also in this ABC4 variation? Then we, at first, we called the gene ABCR. Some people were joking that it is random. No, it was retina ABCR. And then with my then boss, Mike Dean, again, I was still at National Cancer Institute, we renamed the entire super family. And so that's why the genes got those numbers. Yeah, that now we have ABC8. A subfamily and B and C. And in every subfamily, there is, you know, A1, A2, A3, and this gene is now A4. Yeah? So we screened a, this gene in AMD patients, age-related macular degeneration patients. And to our, you know, great joy, we did detect that variation in ABC4 was associated with age-related macular degeneration. Again, at that time, and this was 1997, people didn't have, or study groups, didn't have too many patients, either Stargard patients or AMD patients collected. So we did the initial study in a pretty small number of cases. And the way you do it, you know, you look at the number of variants in cases, and then you look at the number of variants in matched controls. You know, by matched, it's age matched, ethnically matched. And then you see, you know, if there is more in cases or less than in the general population. This is how these association studies are done. And so, yes, we published this paper and it actually uh, happened to appear in science, but it caused really a huge flash of interest. And most people said that, you know, Alec Metz et al. are wrong and this is a spurious finding. And we have figured this out later, much later, what happens in AMD. But today I will stick with Stargard discussion. And yes, and I thought, okay, yeah, we found the gene. Then, of course, I learned, since I knew nothing about the eye yeah, before I joined the Department of Ophthalmology at, at Columbia, then I learned that Stargard is really the most frequent Mendelian, meaning single gene disorder, retinal disorder. Again, the estimations have usually been around one in 10,000 people um, in the world that are affected. I think these numbers are actually much uh, larger because as we soon found out and also colleagues of uh, ours is that mutations in ABCA4, they cause not only Stargard phenotype, they cause cone-rod dystrophy. Some even said that the retinitis pigmentosa-like uh, phenotypes, they 
cause early onset disease. They cause now we know very late onset disease. And actually that's why oftentimes starter patient, if the onset is over 60 years of age, yeah, so they can be confused with A and B because right. these, these diseases both have the same thing that you have the central atrophy yeah, or geographic atrophy as it is. Right. So when, when did you come to Columbia? When did you make that switch out of the cancer world into the retinal world? I started at Columbia March 1st, 99. Wow. So it's been now, will be 23 years at Columbia. So, and uh, I really liked it here a lot. I had a very great chairman, Stanley Chang, who was a retinal surgeon himself, who really was building up the department. Because basically, when I was interviewed, they say, can you establish a retina genetics or let's say eye genetics laboratory? Because there was none in the old tri-state area and actually still is not. And I said, okay, let me try. And because I had worked only for governments before. So I had no practice to writing grants and I was already, you know, in my late thirties. And so I said, okay, let me try. And that actually did work out fine. And I did get all the help needed to start it. And you got some grants from us too, right? Yes, yes. And that's, that's another interesting story that I will tell right now. Okay. What happened here was that since my, so, said like call to fame was disputed so i didn't try to push you know the abc for research as much in my earlier years here at columbia but i did more of a general research into age-related macular degeneration and yes and uh, as i mentioned my chairman stanley chang he assembled all the retina clinicians said you find all the amd samples for ando the controls you know this and that and stargard kind of came along the same way. So I have these protocols now yeah, over 20 years for studying both early onset starter disease and then late onset diseases, mostly age-related macular degeneration. So, and yes, I was lucky to get some funding early. Specifically, I did get the RPB Career Development Award and the connection to FFB started also a pretty curious way. So I had the visit of then FFB top officials and they said, you have to do gene therapy for Stargard disease. I said, I have no clue what gene therapy is. <laughs> And they said, well, you found the gene, didn't you? I said, yes, I did. And now, you know, do the gene therapy. And so then it was, again, a totally new thing for me. I asked, luckily, we had here, since most gene therapy at that time, and even until now, mostly is done in viral vectors. Yeah, you deliver the gene uh, in a viral vector to the tissue, in this case, photoreceptors, where we found out it was expressed only now they also say that it may be expressed in the original pigment epithelium that's still under discussion but basically we have to deliver the normal working gene yeah to the subretinal space yeah so the virus then can go into photoreceptors and rp at the same time and, uh, we made the mouse model of uh, Stargard disease by knocking out ABC4. Yeah, so it was knocked out. There was no ABC4 expressed. 
And so we started testing different gene, I mean, different vectors for gene therapy. Now, the problem was and still is with ABC4 and some other very important eye disease genes that it is a really big gene. Yeah, so it is big, it has a lot of mutations in it uh, that cause the disease. Now we know, I think, over 2,000 already. Most of them are very rare. And so, uh, but since the gene was so big, so the viral vectors uh, based on adeno-associated virus that were and still are the most popular, and for example, the uh, labor congenital amaurosis caused by mutations in RP65, a gene that was done in AAB vectors, but uh, we couldn't use AAB vectors since uh, they just didn't fit, you know, the entire big ABC4 gene. So we chose lentiviral vectors to uh, as a model of delivering. And luckily, we have here uh, a, some well-known scientists who have worked on lentiviral uh, lentiviruses. HIV, for example, is one of lentiviruses, but uh, for obvious reasons, vectors based on HIV were not uh, used much. So we looked at different possibilities. And so we started slowly working on this. And this study was funded by FFB for you know, almost a decade, I would say, maybe a little less. And during that, so we learned that Oxford Biomedic had developed their own vectors based on equine immunodeficiency virus, meaning equine, that is a horse virus. And so therefore, these were considered you know, a better option than HIV-based in humans. And also, they had done several studies in terms of the viral envelopes that in their studies showed better transduction uh, rates, yeah, meaning that the gene was delivered at much better efficacy to the uh, eye issues. So, so then we contacted them and we collaborated for a few years and we published the um, preclinical results that were really pretty good uh, in uh, even the system was mouse whose eyes are not exactly like humans. And then we also showed that we can get the expression of the gene in non-human primate eyes and we tried you know, several models. And we published these studies yeah, in late 2000s, 2008, and some later. Our vectors with ABCA4 went into clinical trials in, I think, 2011 or around that time. So, yes, unfortunately, those trials were stopped. This is just yeah, one example that uh, has frustrated me that there are many good preclinical studies for treating starter disease. And now there are several clinical trials uh, happening, but the pace of moving yeah, from the trial to the you know, approved drug or treatment modality has been extremely slow. And of course, there are many reasons for that. But then with starter disease, the issues are, and also the same with age-related macular degeneration, that is mostly the disease is slow progressing or relatively slow progressing, except the very early onset form. And so in you know reasonable time frame, like two years or so, it is difficult to detect the effect just factually. So that has been an issue here also. So um, Currently, I'm personally not working on any new therapy. I'm really uh, fine-tuning the genetic 
cause of starter disease. We have made many interesting discoveries that I did not expect. I thought it's just a simple monogenic disease. So you have two mutations, you have the disease. Now we know there are a lot of different kinds of mutations that some express under certain conditions. We know there are modifiers, both in the ABCA4 gene and in the genome. And so all of them cause different kinds of disease, yeah, different phenotypes. And we are, A, trying to figure out specifically what can we predict from genetic uh, data. You know, can we tell the patient what to expect uh, and, you know, what is the course of their disease? Can we tell them what is most important or tell the companies that are running clinical trials that what group of patients with starter disease would be informative in uh, their study, depending on, again, what the modality is, yeah, because we discussed uh, gene therapy. I still think that for recessive disease, this would be the best option. But then now there are several other therapies in the pipeline, in clinical trials. Most of them modulate visual cycle. ABCA4 works in the visual cycle. It just flips the vitamin A derivatives in the rod and cone outer segments. And so if it's not working properly, these derivatives accumulate and form toxic compounds. What is generally called lipofusin or HE is one of the main components of lipofusin that are toxic to the cells. Yeah? And specifically, they are toxic to photoreceptors, but HE is in the uh, retinal pigment epithelium. So in starter disease, we have different forms. Uh, in some cases, photoreceptors die first. In some cases, RPE, yeah, retinal pigment epithelium, dies first. But the outcome is really kind of the same. Yeah? You get dead retina, usually in the middle. So it's the macular disease. You, know, you lose your fovea, you lose your central vision. Uh, in this way, it is the opposite to retinitis pigmentosa, where disease starts from periphery and the vision is restricted to the uh, middle after many years, and then it's also lost there. In this case, you lose your central vision, but most Stargard patients still retain pretty good peripheral vision. And, and depending on the severity of the disease, some patients can refocus their uh, vision so they can actually have a very uh, decent uh, visual acuity. And so, so there are many therapies out there, and I hope that some of them will sooner rather than later get approved by FDA. Again, my opinion about those therapies, again, is my opinion as a scientist. So in gene therapy, I said, if it works, would be the best because you really, you do not replace the defective gene, but you add the working gene. And so it's called gene augmentation therapy. And the other good thing about Stargard is that if you are a carrier of ABC4 mutation, you have one of them, like in Stargard parents, yeah, they each have one mutation, your vision is fine. You know, you do not develop any issue. Yes, so this is what we are trying to do. So we are trying to really help the patients. We recently published a very good study by my best student, uh, as a first author, Winston Lee, that we really constructed the matrix of phenotypes depending on genotypes. And, you know, even people who don't know specifically ABC4 or Stargard disease as well, 
they can really look up yeah, what mutations does the patient have, and then they can advise you know, the patient of, of progression of the disease, whether it's you know, rapid onset and, and very bad form of the disease. And this is usually maybe 10% of all Stargard patients. So, but that means that you have no functional Stargard disease. Yeah? So that's the case. Most cases have some uh, Stargard disease, uh, sorry, uh, ABC4 function left. And so, therefore, their disease progression is much slower and you know, sometimes not that bad you know, as it could have been. In, in talking about gene therapy earlier, you mentioned that the ABCA4 gene is relatively big, doesn't fit in the standard viral container. And I just wanted to comment that there are newer versions of these delivery systems that are moving toward clinical trials where you can either split the gene up so it's delivered in two containers, or you can try to take elements out of the gene to shrink it down to fit in the container. There's protein splicing. So there's a lot of great work going on. It's not in the clinic, in clinical trials just yet, but a lot of great gene therapy work going on for ABCA4 so we can get some newer Stargardt disease gene therapies yeah, this is absolutely correct. Yeah, because, you know, I do advise some of these companies that are working on it. As you mentioned, yes, there is the protein splicing option. Putting two different, ha I mean, reducing the size of the gene, I don't believe in that, really. But <laughs> although ABC4 contains two very similar halves, and the studies in mice, again, uh, have been very successful in uh, injecting two vectors yeah, that both contain, that each contain one half, and then they either by recombination in the cell or by some other means form a functional protein. So these studies have shown real promise in mice, but I am not so sure about how they will work in humans. Yeah, because you need to have two different vectors going into the same cell. And so that can, if with a higher tires, can of course be accomplished. But I still prefer like a single vector ideas. Now, this said, uh, as you said, Ben, you're absolutely right. The technology has really shown incredible development. Then there are nanoparticles yeah, that are used to deliver uh, that have no limit in size, or at least, you know, they will definitely take, you know, ABC4. And then there are some other delivery methods that uh, people are trying. And, you know, even the splicing from two could work. I'm not saying it will not. It could. Um, and then, yeah, the other line of work is mostly the modulators of the uh, vitamin A visual cycle or the vitamin A uptake. And they, I also say that you could call gene therapy a cure, but I would not tell patients that they shouldn't try other things because again, you know, if they slow down the disease and if you start taking those uh, compounds or drugs, and again, most of these are oral drugs, yeah, that is another big benefit because you, they don't involve 
operation really yeah what is the injection uh, subretinal injection truly is and so uh, yes i think that probably the future could be a combination of the two that you have the visual cycle modulator and then you know at least it slows down the disease until the gene therapy becomes available yeah but it's still then you have more cells left yeah to be injected I see no reason why some of these therapies that are currently close or in clinical trials could be, you know, are not still completely approved. Because I think it's uh, it's very important to to get to the patients quicker than we are doing now. And the the foundation and other research groups are really focused on on moving these through the clinic. And you're right; they're they're moving. They're moving faster than they have been. And what I love about your story is back when you got involved in this space, well, you didn't even know you were getting involved. It happened very serendipitously, but it really was an art form because we didn't have the technology, the computers, the sequencers. And today it's just a whole different landscape where you can use technology to find things so much more quickly. But I really appreciate your sharing the stories of your early work and how science can sometimes be a serendipitous thing. And it changed the landscape for patients with Stargardt disease. It changed your career. And we're at a much more hopeful juncture now, thanks to... Yes, this is, this is uh, I always tell my students or anybody who wants to listen when they ask me, you know, what career advice you can give. I say that science is unpredictable. You don't know. And there are two things what you need to do. You need to work really hard and be ready for suffering <laughs> because this is how it is. Although, yeah, some people call my, me finding the Stargard gene like by accident. Uh, it was not an accident because I was, you know, systematically looking into ABC transport and uh, finding out what they do and what diseases they could be involved in because some of the known genes were involved in the diseases. So the surprise may have been that it turned out to be an eye gene, a retina gene. But other than that, yeah, I think that it kind of, because as I said, we cloned and published many genes that are now uh, ABC transporters that are now widely used in you know, cancer research and stem cell research and some other disease genes and so uh, yes uh, so it is really but you do have to have some luck also yeah if you, in addition to working hard and then really not expecting much you have to get lucky at some times and in this case turned out to be but i think that some of this so-called luck was because of ABC4, you know, the Stargard gene being so interesting and so complicated that has really changed not even eye genetics, but genetics in general. I mean, I wouldn't say that we were trailblazers or so, but again, Mendelian diseases, this is a model of, of really complex Mendelian disease. Yeah, People were usually saying, oh, monogenic disease and polygenic, yeah, like age-related macular degeneration. Complex disease, simple disease. I always say that actually ABC4, Stargard disease, is the good example of, of simple disease being very complex, right. genetically and also clinically. And so that's why, that is also probably one of the reasons why the treatment has been a little slow to get there, because, you know, it is so heterogeneous, but... 
we have learned a lot and certainly it, it really made my career i remember that at those times when this was art and cloning the genes so people always said you have to get your gene that will make your career and i can say that abc4 definitely has been that gene for me but it really has made my scientific life really interesting and, and i like it and so i always now want to really get quicker results for patients yeah, in terms of treatments uh, but at first it was really you know, a, an investigation into unknown right but through your hard work your passion your commitment and a little funding from various groups you made it happen and Rando, I really appreciate you taking time to kind of tell the Stargardt disease ABCA4 story. It's a long history. And I think even for our constituents out there who don't have Stargardt disease or a macular condition, it's a great example of how science can work. It's not always a straightforward, simple journey. But the good news is we've gone from not even knowing what the gene is to having a lot of clinical trials underway. And we appreciate your, again, your hard work and focus to understand the gene, the disease, and help science move forward. Yeah, anytime. I'm always happy to explain these things so people will understand. Sometimes they say genetics is so complicated actually is but it's not that complicated so you can uh, always explain it to the patients and to everybody who is interested i i'm often in touch with uh, parents of starboard kids because they are worried and they are asking what to expect and as i said a few years ago i couldn't predict much anything yeah? so i said it's a complicated now we have the manual it is not complete yeah? but we have that for the doctors for genetic counselors so that they can advise patients and of course the work goes on and there is still plenty to find but i think we know 90 percent i would say that's awesome that's awesome. Again, Rando, thank you so much for your time and your reflections and your perspectives. It's been a lot of fun and it's been wonderful to know you over the years. I know when I started yeah, we... with the foundation back in 2004, 2005, you were one of the first investigators I met and it's always been great to learn from you. So thank yeah, you. And I still get good support from FFB and I'm very happy with that. So now we are doing this fine tuning of Stargard clinical trials with FFB right. grants, and we're trying to figure out especially how we can really make clinical trials more efficient yeah, by selecting patients and by predicting the outcomes. And yeah, this has been so, yeah, as I said, it's 20 years at least yeah, we've been interacting with Foundation Finding Blindness. Well, it's been a great relationship, a good investment on our part. So thank you, Rando. And thank you to all our Eye on the Cure podcast listeners. We're glad you could join us for this episode and stay tuned for our next installment of Eye on the Cure. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.